You're listening to The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. This episode is 189. That doesn't mean it's not going to be special, but wait till 190. Hello, I'm Lee Ford. And I'm Andy Beacon. And welcome to The Film File. Yes, it's the film show for film geeks by me and Andy. Yep, by now you should know we are. The Film Geeks El Primo. <laughs> the original, the OGs. Yeah. The OG Film Geeks. We're the goats. Yeah, boy. I'm just, I'm we were with proud the to be geeks before geeks became cool. And I'm <laughs> talking of geek. Boy, has this week been... It, it's been the accumulation of nostalgia geek. I feel as though we've gone back in time in, in so many different ways. It's just been incredible. But before <laughs> that, let's mention this week's sponsor. Releasing this week is... Harvey Morton's marvellous book, Succeeding as a Young Entrepreneur, releases 8th of November, so it should be available for you to pick up from yourospanbookstore.com using our exclusive code FILMFILE25 to get a whopping 25% off. It's a fantastic life journey of a young man who, despite all his problems of growing up with bullying and you know insecurities, he's managed to say, this is where I want to be in life, and made every decision to get to that pitfalls along the way, how you deal with them, how you pick yourself up, bounce back. Harvey's life journey is an inspiration to anyone. And the advice that he gives within this book, for anyone who's just got dreams and ambitions but doesn't know how to achieve them, his kind of advice will help you work on your ambitions. If you want to purchase a copy of Harvey's book, all you have to do is follow the link and order yourself a copy and say hi to Harvey from us. He's a friend of the show. So this week, it was Halloween, wasn't it? It was. So I always love to work up. on Halloween. Did I you? freddied up completely. I always work on Halloween anyway. A, because I hate being in the house when trick-or-treaters are knocking on the door and you, you basically have the lights switched off and you're trying to watch TV without them realising there's someone in the house. I hate that whole idea. I don't believe in trick-or-treating. Trick it's begging. It's, it's an American ideal as well. Yeah, I, I, I don't dig on it. So I'm happy to work so that I don't have to be confronted by people demanding that I hand over Smarties and Revels. Um, well, thankfully, it was, uh, thankfully, I say, poor kids, it was chucking it down. So I think I had just one caller. Was it a monster? Did a monster call? A monster call. But uh, because I've been, I've been, this week, I've been totally, totally geeking out. What have you been geeking okay, out? Okay, so we had the launch, and that's why I was when I uh, Halloween was on. I was investing my time into the. Uh, I, I'm rubbish at pronouncing this. The Hooniverse. The Hooniverse. Yep. So we had the launch of the 60th anniversary for Doctor Who, uh, and, and it kicked off with uh, Tales of the Tardis for me. There was the musical show on BBC Four, and before that was about Doctor Who in the media. But the Tales from the TARDIS has just been fantastic, especially in a big call out. It's nearly my neat thing, but a big call out to the Mind Robbers episode because that is probably the earliest TV memory I have. And I, I was watching it going, oh, my goodness, I remember bits of that. I, I remember that imagery. Now, I might have seen it later in life and, and, and just put the pieces together. Mm -hmm. But it, it, what a fantastic idea. And um, this build-up to, to Doctor Who's 60th anniversary is just really well-considered, well-thought-out. And then they've announced that they're doing a recolorized, edited version of the original Daleks episode. It's going to be remastered. 
Uh, you can still see the original version as a friend of mine threw up his arms and went, well, yeah, but I want to watch the original black and white episodes. You can. It's all there on iPlayer, but the recolorized version of Doctor Who and the Daleks is going to be on as well. Fantastic. Really, really geeky. And then we had the Beatles track as well. So it's just been, yes. it's been nostalgia time traveling this week. It's gone back to the 1960s. I'll be honest, it's, it's not classic Beatles. It's, it's more like a, a John Lennon song because it is. Yeah. But just to have it in the world, especially now when the world is so difficult and, and it takes you back to a time when there was, there was a lot of hope for where the world was going and what the future was going to be like. And for that, it's, it's huge kudos to it. We had the quiz night at work, which was last month we had 13 teams. This month it wasn't expected as much because it landed on Halloween. And so a lot of the students in particular would have had like parties and celebrations to go to. We still got six teams good. and some good costumes because we did a special oh, bonus prize. of um, I had a bonus prize of a Hammer Horror uh, DVD box set, like five Hammer Horror films like Quatermass of the Pit, Dracula, oh, Prince favorite. of Darkness, etc. My favourite. Um, so it was a good Hammer Horror collection, not the, not one of the shoddy ones of the, yeah. the latter years of the falling apart. Picking out the teams for winning the best costume, I had to let one of my fellow managers do it because I felt that I could have been quite easily influenced, given that one of the teams uh, had a very good Freddy Krueger costume, and you know what my affection yeah, yeah, yeah. to Freddy Krueger is. That team still won anyway because it was, uh, well, it was regular listener of the show, Lindsay's team. Hello, Lindsay. And... Um, yeah, they had a Claude Rains Invisible Man. Oh, awesome. Um, they had that Freddy Krueger, which it was a full... I mean, my mask's good, but his one was one that goes over the shoulders and neck as well, which is what my next stage is on the development of my costume. Right. And then Lindsay and their partner dressed up as Regan and a priest for The Exorcist. And she was picking makeup and, like, flakes of, like, glue off her face for the first half hour of the quiz because it, like, it was all around her face. She had scars and everything. She had a dressing gown on that she put um, pea soup stains down it. It was really good work. But across the other teams, that we, we were having fun at the start, like me and some of the staff, trying to work out who everyone was dressed up as. I was disappointed that none of the staff recognised the team who had dressed up as Coraline and Obi from um, Coraline. Oh, very good. Very well thought, and it's just like no, no one know, no one knows who they are, and I'm just like yeah, you, you people disappoint me. <laughs> um, there was one one of the teams. Someone just said like, "Why is that one wearing a coat with just feathers stuck on it?" And I looked across, and next to them, the other one had um, a, a, an iron brand on the face. I was like, "Well, it's the it's the bandits from Home Alone, isn't it?" He's like, "Oh, that's really good. Yeah, uh, it was great. Like uh, it was." A, it was a good energy there. One of the teams, one of the newer teams, they brought like nine people for their quiz and said, is this all right? And I just went, yep, you can have nine in your team. Because I've noticed something. The more people that's on the team, the less chance they have to win. Because there's more <laughs> arguments. Right? Every time that there's been a team that has like boosted their numbers, it always goes terribly wrong. One of our regular teams who have been coming to it since day one, they started off with like about six people and then they boosted up to eight and now they're down to usually about four maybe five because they've realized that's the perfect number when they've had larger teams one person an answer goes oh it's this and then someone else goes are you sure i think it might be this and the doubt sets in oh, and you I start see. putting the wrong answers down whereas if you've got a smaller team when one person person says it's definitely this everyone else goes well i've got no clue let's go with it the winning team this this month and again Lindsay's team 
They are killers on the quiz. I just have to say this. Um, I knew this was going to be their month because they love horror. They have chatting to them at work and like, you know, seeing their responses that we get on the question of the week here. They've got a definite horror knowledge. So I knew that the October horror quiz was going to be their one. And they not only smashed it, they got the highest score that any team has got at our All quizzes right. so far. I, I keep saying I must come down. I, I really must, but yeah. I, I will at some point. Come down and have a go. Yeah, the, <laughs> the previous the previous top score was 91 points, and there's usually about 114, 115 points to be scored overall, and they've took it up to 94 is now the new record. So uh, a very successful night. And we were hectic as well with um, three showings of the thing that had sold out at work. So there was a lot of energy in the building. It was, it was a great night. And I, I just like any excuse to dress up as Freddy Krueger. Yeah, I've now got to put I've now got to put my costume back in storage for another year. But I've got my Christmas sweater ready, and it is a Freddy Krueger Christmas sweater. <laughs> so give me a month, and I'm back onto Freddy mode. <laughs> awesome. So last week we asked you a question for our social challenge, and I, for one, this week don't know how well we've done. It was a bit of a tricky one. I'll grant you that. It was. Is there a film that you've seen that you kind of half remember and you, you weren't quite sure what it was and it sort of stayed with you? You've asked friends, you've asked around, and no one can, can reveal the mystery of what this half-forgotten scene or actual movie is. So did we do okay on this, Andy? Uh, yeah, how I posited it out on the socials was a film that you recall seeing but have never found again and it seems no one else has heard of. Maybe you know the title, maybe you don't, but try as you might, you've never found it again. It's that kind of like, did I dream this film or not? And I've got a few of my own, which I'll get to at the end. But we've had we've had a reasonable response on this. Oh, and this was quite a gamble with this one because we didn't know whether it would pick up. A lot of people know the name of the film, but they've never been able to find it again. Uh, we'll start with over at Facebook where Owen Cooper I said, probably a documentary called The American Scream about the build-up to Halloween. No, don't know that. And also, when the when the film of What We Do in the Shadows came out and they saw it for the first time, they'd heard nothing about it and no one was talking about it. And yet, I, I remember that, that What We Do in the Shadows, you had to be part of a unique niche club to know what that was. But now everyone knows what it is, thanks to it building momentum when it got on home release and then the TV series. But the original film, if you said to people, take away TC's what, what We Do in the Shadows, they looked at you like you'd just spoken in Swahili at them or something. Apologies <laughs> to any Swahili listeners out there. Uh, Lindsay said that there's a film called Baby, which was a weird one, and an odd film called The Beast in the Cellar. I think Beryl Reed was in it. I remember that one. Yes, it is. It's, uh, it's If I remember correctly, and you're right, it did have Beryl Reed in it, and it's sort of this sort of, suburban house which has something in the cellar. I'm not sure if it's an Amicus movie. And I, I'm, I'm going to lean more to Amicus than to, to Hammer on this one. But yes, I do remember it. It would very possibly be an Amicus one because Lindsay, if you remember last week, said that she used to watch all the Amicus films late at night. Um, so this will probably be one that's echoed round her. Um, she also added The Watcher in the Woods, the Disney film with Betty Davison. She's looked for it on Disney Plus, but it doesn't exist. From, from what I know about Watcher in the Woods, it um, it went through huge amounts of edits and re-edits before it was actually released. And it was during that period where Disney was sort of a, a bit directionless and didn't know what they were doing with their animated stuff. And they were trying to move into slightly more adult stuff and around the time of Black Hole. But yes, Betty Davis and the teenage girl in it was in one of the Bond films, For Your Eyes Only, if I remember. 
she was the ice skater. Apparently, it's it's not bad. It's not bad at all, but I don't think I've ever seen it. Uh, Lindsay then also thought of something, and this was the kind of thing that we were after. And this, I've had fun with anyone who's done stuff like this. Thought of something, I had no idea what it is, but I remember watching a film late at night, and from what I remember, it was about a girl's school, and a girl gets possessed. And it ends in what looks like a swimming baths, and ends on the possessed girl's face, title's role. Looked 70s, early 80s. Didn't take me long. Okay. The Possessed, 1977. TV movie. Harrison Ford was in it. Oh, really? Yeah, I was going to say, isn't it, isn't it Satan's High School for Girls? I think that's the alternate else. title that it had. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Harrison Ford, James Farantino, Joan Hackett. It, it, it's, it looks very TV movie as well. It's yes. all that grainy TV of the 70s. Uh, but that's the kind of thing that we love when people throw out, like, what do you remember of it? And we have to try to narrow it down. Um, also via Facebook, uh, my mum said The Pit and the Pendulum and Premature Burial. I know Pit and the Pendulum, never heard of Premature Burial. Both based on Edgar Allan Poe. Potentially, it could be part of Roger Corman's Edgar Allan Poe run, which he did Mask of the Red Death, uh, mm. Pit and the Pendulum. Could be Premature Burial, could be part of that. Well, I said do a dig on that and um, track it down. Uh, Lee Leary said, bingo, long travelling all-stars and motor kings. Oh, Captain yeah. D. Williams and James Earl Jones. And Richard Pryor. He's been on TV once, directed <laughs> by John Badham. Lizzie Beth over on Blue Sky. The great land of small. There was something about having to get there by sailing over a rainbow. I remember nothing else, but we used to watch it all the time when we were young. And I think this is like an early 80s film. And it had that, what's the name of the guy who um, was the backward speaking dwarf in Twin Peaks? Oh, um, yes. I, I don't yeah. remember, but yeah, I, I remember that. Um, I've, I've got a vague memory of this myself because it's kind of my era of growing up um, in the early 80s and seeing this. So, yeah, I think I, rem I think I know what film she's talking about there. Over on X Twitter, Craig Wright Tech Writer, who's at Stray Goat over on Twitter. When I was younger, saw a film that in my memory was about a truck driver whose brother and or wife got killed and he went after revenge. It was very low budget, and I thought it had Lee Van Cleef in it, but no. As a kid, it seemed very violent and exciting, and it maybe had Thunder in the title. Thunder Road? No, not Is Thunder it... Road. Oh, I know. Oh, okay. It's, uh, yes, it's, it's, it was a, one of those uh, vigilante-style movies. It starred Bo Hopkins. Is that the one I'm thinking of? Now, the thing is here, is the film that he's remembering doesn't have thunder in the title but shares similar themes to a film that had thunder in the title and i narrowed this down and got it worked out because initially i thought that maybe it was um silent thunder the tv movie from the early 90s okay. so one son got killed by a truck driver the father goes chasing down the trip the killer yeah. and we, I found some clips of it on YouTube and all that and backwards and forwards and said that Rolling Thunder sounds like something that you would have watched too, but possibly my memory is mixing them up. And that's when it got me digging around a bit. And I then worked out there's a film called Killing Machine from 1984 with Lee Van Cleef in it. A trucker right. seeks revenge for the murder of his wife. Uh, very similar theme, very similar basis. There was loads of films with Thunder in the title yeah. at the time that had trucks in it that caused this confusion. So this is one of those examples where you half remember something and the memory of that mixes with something else. And that's why you get the confusion trying to find the film again because you, you can't separate where one film ends and the other one began. But he reckons that that's definitely the one. 
He thought that there was some facial hair involved, at least. <laughs> um, being a Euro film, it makes sense, given he knew it was no budget, even at that age, about eight. <laughs> and he then finished off saying, now I know why my dad said it was bad and that I shouldn't be watching it. <laughs> For a long time, I had a memory. of. I've, I've got a few of these, but starting with a memory of a kid who'd got like a almost like a, a, a rubber glove on his head uh, and in this very, very obscure, strange, strange uh, reality. Mm. And it was, uh, it turns out, and I found out a few years back, it was, and I could remember this image. I remember it being in black and white and it was a Dr. Seuss movie. And it was, I think it's called 50,000 Fingers, mm. something like that. Um, podcast nobody asked for, suggested Warriors of Virtue. Ninja Kangaroos, it's mental. I'm the only person who's ever watched it, and I'd never heard of it. I looked it up, and it looks like someone picked up the spare prosthetic makeup masks from Tank Girl and decided to make a, a kung fu film around it. Uh, I need to track that down to watch. It looks exactly the level of rubbish that I immerse myself into so much. Um, last film scene suggested Possible Worlds from 2000, and I've added it onto my watch list of films that I want to get no, around I to watch. Um, Apple Park Films said Adventures in Dinosaur City which I think was just called Dinosaurs in the UK No, um, when it got released. Stevie Dan 1969, Bear Island, was taken to see this in the cinema by parents in 1979. In the 70s, being taken to the cinema was a treat, even if it was a Cold War thriller. And yes, yes, yes. Donald Sutherland. Yeah. I've said before that my mum used to take us to the cinema to watch everything, including Can't Stop the Music, the Village People movie. <laughs> and I, I never regretted any of them because it was just a treat to go to the cinema. Last film scene also threw in Tears of the Black Tiger from 2000. Yeah, good movie. Electric Orange Productions. It was on TV years ago, The Screaming Woman. Super scary. I think she was buried alive. And Beer Map Movie said, whilst not an exact match to the question, Escape from the Dark, US title was The Little Horse Thieves. Saw it as a kid, went to write about it as an adult, nigh on impossible to find. Even Disney UK's press team didn't know anything about it and couldn't find anything, anything for him to use. <laughs> uh, another one from me, The Phantom Tollbooth. Ooh. Oh, that rings a bell. So it was uh, Hanna-Barbera, if I remember correctly. And it's based on a, a book which is better known in the US than it is here. It's it's a lovely, lovely kids movie. That sort of 1970s anima animation style. Mm. Uh, starts off yeah. as live action uh, and then goes into into being animated. It's a, a fantastic movie and disappeared off, off the world completely. Then we head over to Mastodon for the roundup of the last lot of the, the suggestions from other people. Anom Anomaly said, for 30 years, try to remember the film I saw as a kid on cable at my friend's house. All I remembered, it was about cavemen and had Ringo Starr in it. It wasn't until about 2010, I remembered it again and tried looking it up. Lo and behold, searching for caveman movie with Ringo, Ringo Starr, came back with a 1981 movie, Caveman. I saw that. Found it on YouTube, watched it and realised what a bad film it was. But yeah. to a preteen kid, it was hilarious. And this was one of mine for years because I saw this film, Caveman at a very young age, and found it hilarious. And no one at school saw this film. And I convinced myself for decades that I had dreamt up a film with Ringo Starr playing a caveman. But there was, there was scenes like them carrying the giant egg That's and it. going like, into the dip and like getting stuck there and rough rattling back and forwards. There was the giant bug that lands on one of their faces while they're asleep and he squishes it into his face. All those kind of scenes were there in my head. Yeah. But I couldn't find the film. And I, again, about 10 years ago, I stumbled upon it and I was just like, it exists. Uh, that got us into a little exchange about things that um, 
you've you've kept finding that you're convinced that like you you were the only person who saw and for me it was like tv shows that i watched as a kid like alias the jester which came from cosgrove hall who did like danger mouse etc and I, I, I had people convincing me that i had made up alias the jester so youtube saved me on that one in recent years when it was like there i found an episode of it i'm not going mad <laughs> i saw i saw caveman as a double bill uh, for the life Ooh. of me i i don't remember what it is but i think i think it could be a film called roadie uh which was about roadies and it would have had alice cooper in doing one scene and back then it was so hard you know there's no youtube and you couldn't see your favorite favorite artist so I think I went to see it, and I'm pretty sure it was Caveman and and Rhodey. But I have seen Caveman with Ringo Starr. Starred is is his wife, Barbara Back, as well. Um, at Mike thirty five said the Rover, aka La Venturario from nineteen sixty seven. Satima said, I know what it is, but I spent years looking for a live action movie featuring a singing fairy tale animals on roller skates. Turns out it's Romanian. Features the Bolshoi, and it's called Mama a.k.a. Rock and Roll Wolf from 1976. Oh, that's a great one. Posted a, a screenshot image of it, and that looks bizarre, and I f now feel that I need to track that film down and watch it. Don't don't go all singing ring entry on me, because you'll, you, you'll, you'd need therapy if you watched it. You can find it on YouTube. Anybody, anybody of a certain age will remember their childhoods being blighted by watching that, that series. And we've had um, Andrew Boosts with Wild Abandon, said, I had one of these. It was a film where a gang leader terrorises a residential tower. Nobody could stand up to him until one elderly resident constructs a pair of locking gauntlets and basically bear hugs the guy into submission and arrest. Saw it on TV when I was a child, couldn't find anything about it. Turns out I wasn't the only one who remembered it. Okay, don't know that one. It's good to see there's a load of people who've forgotten the titles of the films but have vague memories. Because when you're growing up, you watch, you consume so much that you you don't always remember what they are. So my ones. Now, obviously, I've already mentioned Alias the Jester. I was convinced for decades that I had dreamt Empire of the Ants as a little kid. Uh, Empire of the Ants, yeah. uh, John Collins, if I remember. Joan Collins. Joan Collins, a B-movie classic. Yeah. Uh, my mum had took us to see that at the cinema, and no one else had ever heard of it. And it was only about 20 years ago that I finally managed to convince people that it existed by finding a version of it. And then I watched it, and I wish I didn't. It's terrible. <laughs> it's, it's, it's terrible. But, but in my child look, childlike imagination, it was marvellous. I remember, like, you know, the, the radioactive leaking fluid on the beach that starts it all off, that starts the ants starting to grow and take control, and then the queen ant is actually controlling humanity through psychic abilities. As a kid, that was marvellous stuff. As an adult, it was yeah. the worst low-budget schlock that I've ever seen. <laughs> The one that has really had me for ages, and I finally worked out what it was, literally within the past year. And the reason why this had me going for ages is people would have so many suggestions of what they believed it was, and it wasn't. So back in the in my student days, I got in drunk from a night nightclub at one point and put on ITV. And ITV used to drop some right trash in the early hours of the morning. And one film they had a film on, and it was a German film, and it was set in an elevator. And the people get trapped in there overnight and tensions rise and they end up fighting on top of it. Now, I've had people tell me, oh, that's the 70s film Der Lift. It wasn't. I recalled the fashions of the film being much later than that. I had people tell me that it was the 2013 film Free or Fall. It's like, well, clearly not because I was at university in the 90s. So this was not a more recent film. I've had people tell me that it's the 2011 film Elevator. Again, I'm not a time traveler, so it clearly wasn't that. 
or 2001's The Shaft. Again, I'm still not traveling through time, but there's loads of films set in a lift where tensions escalate, be it German, Canadian, American. Yeah, 2001's The Shaft was a US language one. It was definitely German. I was studying German at the time and I used, like, watching it and half recognizing what they were saying without reading subtitles. Turns out it's Abvarts from 1984, aka Downwards or Out of Order. And I now want to track it down and see whether it stands up to what my memory was, because it's about a bookkeeper has just robbed his employer, gets stuck in a lift with um, a couple who are going through problems. And then all the tensions escalate because they can't get an engineer to come and fix the lift because all the communications have gone out. The engineer's gone home for the night. The alarm system's not working. And it, it just I just remember just being transfixed. Now, it might have been my drunken memory remembers it being exciting and like capturing my attention. But I am tracking this film down and I will report back what I think of it once I've tracked it. Uh, the Dr. Seuss film was 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T, uh, which is an absolutely bizarre film and well worth well worth checking it out. If you can find it, it's one of those that particularly hard to get. I've got lots of memories of, and they don't make them anymore, which is a, is a real shame. And they are an absolute time capsule to a period where uh, there used to be American TV movies, and there were some mm. great sci-fi uh, and uh, and horror movies, uh, and some of those until recently that I I kind of kind of remember because there were some of them were quite scary. Steven Spielberg used it as a great launch pad for for some of his. So there was one set on some sort of research base in in uh, in, in the polar ice cap, and yeah. uh, it starred Robert Culp. And it was really scary because they are being intimidated by some presence which is in this base. Uh, Eli Wallach was in it. It's it's never been never seen again. You can find it on YouTube, but it's a really really bad bad copy. And it's called yeah. Cold Night's Death. And and you can check it out on YouTube, but it's a really really poor quality version so if anyone knows of a, of a great copy i'd love to see it again i remember it terrifying me uh one uh, with william shatner in where he was working with a school teacher in this sort of remote uh, american sort of farmland and it all turned out that they were all aliens uh, and then one i think i think it was called the love wars and it had angie dickinson in and again another half remembered science fiction movie from that particular that particular area and, uh, and brilliant Oh, I'm really pleased that this one um, it, it gained traction because we it were traction. Yeah, we were thinking last week would this work? Uh, if we should do this as a as a regular spot on the show, we've been talking about it for ages. So, drop us a line if you've got any half remembered movies you want us to talk about over the next coming yeah. weeks, and we'll see if we can track them down or uh, or just tell us movies that you grew up with. So, for this week's question, uh, as we've got our deep dive into a monster calls and um it's a very emotional film but either a scene or a film that just makes you makes you blub makes you cry makes you makes you sob almost to the point where if you know it's coming up you can't watch it what's that film what's the film that really gets under your skin hits you like an emotional emotional punch uh, and makes you makes you cry let us know here at the film file and andy how can people let us know over on social media, search for Film File UK. We're on pretty much all of them. And that's where we post the question out on the majority of the social media platforms. Or you can email us directly, podcast at filmfile.uk. 
Or if you're listening on Spotify, the question of the week will be in the show description and you can answer via there. Look forward to hearing your responses. But what are we talking about on this week's show? Well, this week, we're going to be doing a deep dive into A Monster Calls. Andy has reviews of... Um, landed on Disney Plus this week, Quiz Lady. R- landed on Apple TV Plus and at cinemas, Fingernails. And landed a limited release in cinemas in the UK at the Royal Hotel. We've got neat things. We've got chatter. We've got banter. We've got the box office. And we've got the news. So what's top of the box office this week? Ah, Five Nights at Freddy's. Still fully Five Nights. Or as Taylor Swift made her way back to the top spot. Or is there something new? Andy, what's this week's box office. So in the US this weekend, Five Nights at Freddy's held the top spot, only taking 19 million over the weekend. That's around about a 75 to 80% drop off since last week. Taylor Swift, the era store, is in second place, taking another 13.6 million. It's now up to 231 million worldwide. Quite successful for a concert tour. Killers of the Flower Moon in third place with 6.9 million. Priscilla, new entry in number four with 5.1 million. And Radical, with 2.7 million, takes fifth place. Here in the UK, Trolls Band Together takes the top spot. 1.8 million is its total. Five Nights at Freddy's is in second place, taking 1.37 million. Killers of the Flower Moon in third place, 1.14 million. Taylor Swift in fourth place with another 970,000. And Paw Patrol, the mighty movie, still holding into the top five with 536,000. Five Nights at Freddy's drop off on its second week is huge. Um, it's, it's close to 80% drop-off in the US, which is one of the biggest drop-offs that we've seen for something that opened so strong. I mean, it opened so strong at the cinemas last week, and also Peacock also had it as the most-watched film or series ever in its first five days of the platform. So there was clearly an audience for it, but turns out that gaming audiences are very limited and there's not going to be, it doesn't look like it's generating much repeat viewing traffic or word of mouth. Well, it's not generating positive word of mouth because even fans of the game are saying, I enjoyed it, but. Um, so anyone who's not familiar with the game series has just been put off and it's not got any legs. I reckon Five Nights at Freddy's is going to disappear into an animatronic hell in the next two weeks. And next week, the Marvels isn't tracking very well either. Yeah, well, pre-sales are down, aren't they? They initially thought it'd be a 150 million opener. And as it gets closer, it's dropped further and further. And now it's predicting around 71 million opening weekend for the US, which is less than Black Adam did about a year ago. Uh, whether this is down to a general lack of interest in superhero films or in Marvel or in this film itself, we don't know. But the big complicating factor is um, obviously the fact that the cast can't promote the film due to the ongoing strikes. There has been a lot of negativity surrounding this film from day one before we even saw any stills we knew who was connected to it uh, what the idea was there has been just a front of people putting this film down trying to destroy it before it's even released now you can make your own connection to that and you and i have spoken about this uh, previously but it didn't help this week with this week's variety. Before we get on to the variety piece, I just want to quickly mention on the strike action that the meetings this week seem to have been progressing well. According to Deadline, 
there's a package being presented from the studios to the Actors Guild, which include the highest wage increase in 40 years, along with 100% increase in performance compensation bonuses for high budget streaming movies and services. And there's also full AI protections that go a long way to what SAG wanted. So we're getting close to the end, hopefully, of the Screen Actors Guild strike. So if it is marketing and not being able to have cast on the press tours to talk about the film, and particularly with the Marvels, you've got Iman Villari and um, Tiona Paris, who are kind of new to the big screen Marvel universe. And so their characters could have done with that extra promotion from the cast. Hopefully next week we'll have some updates on that. But let's get on to the aforementioned variety piece. Or shall we say hit piece? It's a huge hit piece. Now, variety, normally you can rely on variety to be well-researched, informative. They're kind of like the proper insiders. Whilst you've got trash websites out there like We Got This Covered and Giant Freaking Robot and something about toast and stuff like that, who just spitball garbage and then delete off anything that they get wrong so that it makes them look like they get everything right. Variety is normally, you know, it's like Hollywood Reporter. You go to them because you trust what they're saying. So they put out a piece this week, which was a front page piece for them. And it's now started a torrent of articles all heralding the collapse of the MCU and their failures. And it it was a terrible piece of hit, a piece of news reporting. It was a huge article, but it was all drawing from information provided by an anonymous source who will remain unknown. And that straight away got me going, hang on a minute. If you're not going to name who the source is, this could be anything reading through it and there's some key things that i want to draw on from within this piece that stood out to me but it's clear that this is just someone who's just got a vendetta against marvel and just wants to create a lot of hysteria out there i'm not saying that marvel are perfect at the moment we know that they're struggling they're not quite being the huge success that they used to be and we know the reasons why they churned out too much stuff in the last two years saturated the market didn't they but Disney and Disney themselves have already acknowledged this and have slowed things down and they've got plans to slow things down and draw them out. But the main items that came out of the article. Now, first of all, there was the suggestion that Marvel are considering bringing back the original Avengers to reset things in an effort to turn things around. There have apparently been talks to bring back the original stars, including the killed off likes of Robert, Robert Downey Jr.'s Iron Man and Scarlett Johansson, Black Widow. The studio hasn't yet committed to the idea, though. And if they do it, it would be costly. Well, yes, it would be costly. Is this really news that they're considering bringing back the original cast, given that we already know that Secret Wars is a few years away and it was already said in there that it gives the opportunity to bring them back for one last shot? It's the whole idea. So trying to suggest in this article that it's because of how bad Marvel is at the moment that they're doing this, there's probably about 100 to 200 spitballed ideas of what they could do going forwards. This would have just been one of that many. They're not going to bring them all back yes i do suspect that they will all show up in avengers secret wars but we already know that robert downey jr was demanding huge wages and all the cast had kind of increased their wage calls which means that if they did bring back the original core group it's going to make the films escalating cost and that's the problem that marvel have at the moment is the films are costing too much already they're not going to go down this route. Variety, stop talking rubbish. It's funny, I was drawn to this this article due to reading articles saying this was a hit piece. Not sort of pro-Marvel sites, but general sort of film news sites that were talking about this feeling like a hit piece, as opposed to people just bandwagon jumping in and go, this is how it is. With regards to Captain Marvel, 
comments that we referred to previously. Captain Marvel apparently had early test screenings that were not a success, resulting in edits and reshoots. Yeah, that's what a test screening's for. They do test screenings to work out whether the film works and then do re-edits and reshoots on the back of that. Every film goes through this. Every film has test screenings. Every film gets tweaked afterwards as a result. It's nothing strange. But it's strange how the, fa- the press are focusing on this for a female-led project. Nida Costa apparently ban- began working on her next project while the Marvels was still in post-production. Yeah. And how's this news? Because Martin Scorsese works on three different pro- projects at the same time. Spielberg made Schindler's List and Jurassic Park at the same time. So how is it news? Oh, I can see what the problem is. It's a female-led film with a female director. I can see why why they're basically saying that it's bad at this point in time, because woman should just do one thing at once. Woman cannot balance multiple things. A lot of the negativity around Marvels is clearly coming from, I'm going to say it, an incel culture that has grown. And remember the first Captain Marvel had a very similar negativity yeah. at the start of it. Finished on 1.3 billion. So in your face, incels. This is just giving, this is just feeding them more things for them to latch on and go, Ooh, this film's going to be a, a bomb because it's it's got women in charge of it. Hit pieces like this, you expect from the hack schlock websites. You don't expect it from someone like Variety. There was the rumor that Maya Shara Ali was ready to step away from Blade due to the constantly changing creative team and lack of momentum. Ali signed on for the role many years ago. I mean, we've joked saying like, you know, he was four years old when he signed on to do this role. And <laughs> by the time he's 80, he might get round to making it. Uh, a source for the trade familiar with the various script incarnations said at one point it morphed into a narrative led by women and filled with life lessons. Oh, again, it's uh, it's the fact that women might be involved in this story that is uh, getting people a bit upset. I can't quite understand what the problem is here. Ali was ready to exit over script issues, leading to Feige going back to the drawing board and hiring Logan and Blade Runner 2049 writer Michael Green. We know that this has been a trouble production. We know it's been delayed for multiple things. I don't personally believe that Ali was ready to walk at any point, given that, as we've mentioned previously, he's very closely linked to the production side of this. So he's invested in making sure this comes to the screen. It's got script issues. It's getting rethought. It will eventually come out. But again, it's the little hints in this article that every time that it's find a fault, it finds a female reason for that fault Right. that suggests that this article was written by someone who's got a bit of an agenda. We, we know that there's issues with Jonathan Majors because he's now got his court dates that he's got to attend. It's not being overturned. And so obviously the studio have been considering what they would do in the worst case scenario. But this is reported by Variety as Kang is rumoured to be getting replaced by Doctor Doom. And it's all been set up that Doctor Doom's going to come in and Kang gets sidelined or completely destroyed. They, they suggested that this is already going to be happening. Not necessarily. It's a backup plan in case things go awry with regards to Jonathan Majors. They have to protect themselves as a studio. And would this be a bad thing anyway if Doctor Doom was to come in and replace Kang? Because in the comics, it's played out exactly that way many times. So it wouldn't cause a major overturn. They're prepping themselves for any potential future problems. Uh, the recasting of Kang is, is still an option, apparently. Of course it is. It, it, it's common knowledge that they can recast a character in a multiverse. They're also looking to the blue chip heroes like X-Men and Fantastic Four, which are back under their control as a potential means to reinvigorate the brand. This isn't new news. 
we've known that ever since they've bought back the rights to all them by buying Fox, that at some point they will become the core characters within it. And we've been waiting for the Fantastic Four news to happen for so long. But Variety puts this as though this is a secret insider information. This whole article was just junk. Those are the worst kind of articles. It doesn't matter whether it's a, a film series that we like or, or not. We will call this out because it is, it's a hit piece. And as you said, Andy, yeah. it's based on hearsay, rumouring, and, and the worst kind of, uh, of journalism at the moment. Ooh, let's see what's online and pull together all these strands. We can say a thing. We could make something up. Put it out there. Tell them we've got a source. We don't have to have a source. We might have just heard a rumour from a rumour from a rumour. But we don't. We take the time. And we, we, we even mention if we don't think it's going to be a, a, a goer, we tell, ask you to take it with a pinch of salt. Uh, but it does feel, and it's felt this right from the film going into production, that there has been a hit on this movie. Now, whether it's a good movie or not, we won't know until next week. But if it is down to the fact of it being misogynistic-led or trying to make a point about superhero movies, the same thing's happening, as we know, with, with Aquaman at the moment. A lot of people join speculation about that film without anyone knowing what cut it is that's coming out. It's it's very, very frustrating. And if it is, the same misogynistic, it has, has no right to be. I'm going to move on, Andy. I'm going to talk about a film that we have been looking forward to for an awful long time. And we even talked about this a few weeks ago. The long-delayed Warner Brothers remake of Salem's Lot. Yes, this was bizarre because on Tuesday night at the quiz, talking with the teams afterwards, I mentioned that there's been literally no news on this for a while. It seems to have vanished. And then got in from work and it had literally dropped as news whilst I was talking about it at work. So Gary Doberman directed re-adaptation of the, uh, of the classic Stephen King story. Uh, Gary Doberman was a writer, brought us things like The Original Nun, uh, has basically made a statement this week, and it is, it's not a reflection of the film's quality. It's due to the fact that the ongoing SAG-AFRA strike has created a growing need for Max content. And what we mean by that is HBO Max, or Max as it's known in the States. It's going to look like the upcoming re-adaptation will now land on HBO Max and completely bypass a big screen outing. Which I've seen some people saying this is disgraceful and like a film like Salem's Lot should go to the big screen, who seem to have forgotten that the original TV movie was a TV movie. Yes. Well, it was <laughs> episodic at first and then got recut into a TV movie uh, and then got reshown in cinemas across Europe. Stephen King himself has come out on X, formerly Twitter. The Warner Brothers remake of Salem's Lot, currently shelved, is muscular and involving. It has the feel of old Hollywood. When a film was given a chance to draw a breath between getting to business, when attention spans were longer, in other words. I take what Stephen King says with a pinch of salt because he said similar about uh, that Pet Cemetery remake and also that Pet Cemetery remake's prequel. He's like the proud, proud grandfather in a little bit. The same way that Ch James Cameron will plug and promote anything to do with the Terminator, even if he's got no involvement in it. He just wants his name properties to be successful out there. But I am still interested in it because I do like the casting and I do like the story. And I'm hopeful that it'll it'll be a nice companion piece to that marvellous original film. I, I still got, think it's going to struggle to be as good as that original film. 
Oh, yeah. But I'm willing to give it a shot. Yeah, yeah. You, well, you know us. We, we don't want to criticise a thing until we've seen it, until we know about it. You, you know, form at the moment, it can't be. They're not looking at a box office hit, clearly. They're, so they're holding it back and uh, at least they're not dumping it. And we get a chance to see it and make our own. Uh, our own decision on whether it's a good movie mm-hmm. or not. But we have been looking forward to this, well, since it was announced uh, and looking forward to seeing it, hopefully next year. I have another thing. Maggie Gyllenhaal's second feature was to be a retelling of The Bride of Frankenstein. Uh, and it was reportedly uh, going to Netflix, but that got passed because Guillermo del Toro's long gestating adaptation of Frankenstein, another take on the classic tale originally by Mary Shelley. Actor-turned-director Maggie Gyllenhaal has managed to repackage the film, and it looks like it's going to go forward at Warner Brothers. It looks like Penelope Cruz is set to be on board to play the bride of the title, while Christian Bale has reportedly signed on to play uh, Dr. Frankenstein. Peter Saragard is also part of the cast but we don't have any details on his role yet so just when you thought there was only one frankenstein monster film happening there now apparently are two and that's such a good thing there's a wave of them at the moment it seems to be the in thing i'm I'm more than happy for any alternate takes on the frankenstein story i think it's one of those it's one of those stories that can just be recreated and reinvented it can be told from any perspective as well, and, and any sort of modern ideology can be brought into Frankenstein's monster. Hey, you know how I said earlier about um, how some directors work on multiple projects at the same time, but only when women do it. Yes, it's bad. I think you may have said that. Well, remember last week when I said that Michael Mannard's confirmed that his next film that he's working on is Heat Two. Yes. Well, he's also working on developing a U.S. adaptation of the South Korean crime dr- crime thriller Veteran. So how how is he managing to do two things at once? I don't understand. I don't know. Surely this should be reported as negative news by Variety. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, the original film was penned and directed by Ryu Seung Won. Uh, premiered in 2015 at Toronto, and it dealt with the tyrannical heir to a mega corporation whose wealthy family is able to buy the young man's way out of punishment for his crimes. Hardened detectives, however, don't want to let this happen. Man is developing the script at this point in time with Korean film and TV conglomerate CJENM, but it's not yet been decided whether Man himself will direct it or whether he'll just serve as writer and producer. Work on the project was halted due to the writer's strike, but it's now back on the table. So Michael Mann is doing two things at once because uh, directors can do that. It's strange. Well, well, male directors clearly can do it. Women just do one thing at once because you, you might get something wrong. It's the fact that that news dropped on the same week as people are like criticizing Nia da Costa for doing two things at once. It was just like, this is perfect timing. <laughs> Ghostbusters Afterlife, the official Twitter account for the upcoming sequel, has posted a Halloween tease last week, promising something strange is coming soon, which teases us that the, the trailer is ready to land. The movie was originally set for a Christmas release, but is now March 2024. And recent rumours have suggested that the title is going to be Ghostbusters Frozen Empire, but that's not confirmed. So keep a little sprinkle of salt to one side until the trailer lands. Andy, did you ever see Fall? Yes, that was intense. Anyone who's got a, a fear of vertigo, it's a must watch. It apparently now that there is in development a sequel to Scott Mann's High Altitude movie with the news that the production company uh, Capstone Studios is green lighting not one but two films. Yeah, I'd seen that. I'm I'm not overly convinced that it 
it's a film that needs to be franchised out yeah, into yeah. multiple stories. Uh, it's a great film, and it's more for how it was shot because it really captures that vertigo-inducing intensity. Yes. With some great long shots to see how, exactly how high up they are, and then the positioning of the cameras to really get you on the ledge with them. If you've never seen Fall, it is available on a few of the streaming services. It's well worth checking out. I'll remain optimistic about them being able to do something similar as a, a sequel. Uh, and talking of sequels that we didn't know that we wanted, Makey Monroe is starring in It Follow sequel, They Follow, which the original came out in 2014, has become a cult horror film. Do we need a sequel? It Follows is one that I don't think I was in the right frame of mind when I watched okay. it. Because for me, when I saw It Follows, my instant response was like, what follows? Immediate disappointment. Uh, but I want to go back and revisit and see maybe it was just one of them that I just wasn't quite ready for. Do we need a sequel? I don't know. Let's see how it works out. Uh, for another thing that do we need a sequel? Art the Clown is returning next year in Terrifier 3, which is set okay. to arrive on October the 25th. It's the third instalment of Damien Leone's film series taking place during Christmas as art played by David Howard Thornton terrorizes Mills County where its residents drift off to sleep on Christmas Eve. Uh, How to Train Your Dragon, the live action remake adaptation of the series has now been pushed back by three months going from March the 14th, 2025 to June the 13th, 2025. The, The shift in the calendar is again as we'd expect at this point in time, due to the ongoing actor strikes. Uh, Sergio Ronan is to star in the satirical thriller Bad Apples. She'll play a teacher dealing with a very disruptive student in a satirical pick that marks the English language debut of Swedish writer-director Jonathan Etzler. Ronan uh, stars as Maria, a primary school teacher, doing her best to inspire a class of 10-year-olds, but unable to because of one unruly and chaotic student we're on holiday season sadly the holiday movie teddy's christmas which stars shazam star zachary levi as the voice of a bear has set a december the 1st u.s release date expect it to land probably on a streaming service in the uk not too soon afterwards the film is directed by andrea ekbom and it deals with themes of friendship and holiday spirit as you'd imagine don't expect um, seth mcfarlane style ted shenanigans in this one this is going to be a charming one with zach levi as a bear i I thought that was a sequel that you were talking about then bleaker street survival horror thriller the origin is undergoing a title change it is now going to be known as out of darkness it's helmed by andrew cumming and is going to hit cinemas on february the 9th and it's a story that unfolds forty-five thousand years ago and follows a group of six young women who struggled across the narrow sea and tundra wastes to find a new home when night falls they realize they are not alone it sounds interesting I'm intrigued enough to mark that on my calendar for February next year. And the final bit of quick news, and this is one that pleases me because I love, I love the music of the original film. And I'm glad to hear that Chad Stahelski has confirmed that the music of Queen is still going to play a significant part in his reboot of Highlander. It's got to that point now where we, we're hearing little drops on the Highlander reboot. So that's usually a good sign when people are talking about it so fingers crossed that that this is going to happen but yeah yeah the queen soundtrack was very very much a part of the the movie storytelling it's like if you do a flash gordon movie you kind of feel you've got to have queen's flash yes as the main theme i think it's time for some trailers and we've had some great trailer drops this week 
starting off with Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt, who are electrifying in the action-packed official trailer for David Leach's The Fall Guy. And this is The Fall Guy based on the TV show, which originally starred Lee Majors. Yeah, when this film was first announced, uh, you'll remember that I had a lot of enthusiasm for it because I had fond memories of watching The Fall Guy, uh, usually on a Sunday afternoon, I believe it was. What was, what was the character's call again? Colt Seavers. Colt Seavers. <laughs> what a name. Yeah, I, I remember watching this as a kid and loving it. And when it when it got announced, it was like, oh, this could be interesting. And then when Ryan Gosling got attached, knowing what his comedy chops are, as we discussed last week when we talked about the nice guys, I got more excited. I'm glad to see that the trailer taps into everything that I kind of wanted from it. It's about a stunt man who gets embroiled in a mystery. And the, the, the series was like a, a mystery of the week kind of yeah. thing. He was like, you know, it, it was either doing bounty hunting work or he was investigating crimes. The film looks like it's going to be a David Leach all-out action, action fest, fest of <laughs> yeah. fun, which is all that we kind of want with a David Leach film because he knows how to balance like the humour, the drama, and some stunning action. Yeah, it looked a lot of fun. March the 1st, though, it's happy birthday, Andy, next next year yeah. with um, a bit of Ryan Gosling on the big screen. The next trailer that landed this week, and this is another film that I'm salivating about, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Yeah, that finally dropped. That seems to uh, it seems to have gone very quiet. There was lots and lots of information about it. And then uh, it sort of fell off the radar, but yes. We're in proper apes territory now. It look, you know, all the apes are talking now, and it's it's a proper ape-led world where humans apparently looking at some of the glimpses are getting hunted down. So we are pretty much at the start point of the original Planet of the Apes, I, I can't wait. It looks great. What we managed to pick up from this is it's directed by uh, the Maze Runner trilogy's West Ball. And it's time now that we're in this time now we're seeing Caesar's son, Cornelius, who seems to be running, running the show. And there were some fantastic shots of uh, cities overgrown, new apes, new kind of battles. Um, it looks stunning. It looks stunning. Uh, we've loved the reboot. It's been six years since Matt Reeves' uh, last trilogy, which starred, of course, Andy Serkis as Caesar. Can't wait. Uh, there was uh, two new trailers. Well, one of them was a featurette for um, lovers of kaiju stuff. Uh, the first one is the Monarch series, which starts in a few weeks on Apple TV. There was a featurette yeah. behind the scenes look, which gives you some insight into what the whole idea behind it is looks very tantalizing a few new glimpses of shots in there there's something special about godzilla let's be honest and it doesn't get more special than the new trailer for godzilla minus one which you you watch it and you think well it all looks very godzilla at the moment and then his the spines on his back start popping up and sparking up one by one for that closing moment of it it's just like Oh my God, this looks amazing. Godzilla Minus One is coming from the Japanese studios. It looks absolutely spectacular. And even Gareth Edwards, who gave us the US version of Godzilla in recent years, says he believes that Godzilla Minus One embodies what a Godzilla movie should be. In his words, there were a lot of things that I felt were very new for Godzilla, and I felt jealous the whole time I was watching the movie. So if Gareth Edwards is loving it, I can't wait. Yep. Wait until next month to get this one in my life. It's already been released in theatres in Japan and taking in $3 million, setting a new record for the biggest opening day for a Godzilla movie in the modern era. And that leads us to uh, the one trailer that has surprised a lot of people who were being very negative about this when it went into production. And this kind of 
draws back to us talking earlier about how people get negative on female-led properties from Marvel. And then turns out you shouldn't write off this horse before it gets to the starting point. Yeah, we, we had a little rant just before we started recording when we mentioned that we were doing this, that uh, people will put on their uh, their Twitter feeds or their uh, film podcasts. Who wants to see this? And then they'll damn it. Nobody before, asked for this. Nobody asked for it. That's the term, isn't it? And then they'll damn it before yeah. it's, uh, it's even landed. Uh, and this has gone through, as we know, some production problems. And that's Echo for, uh, for Marvel. Yes, we know that it got dropped by two episodes to make it tighter and then people were damning it going oh no one wants to see this uh people are only going to watch it because of daredevil or the kingpin's going to be in it and then the trailer dropped and it looks bloody and it looks violent and it looks like nothing else we've seen from marvel yeah it's you know everyone was like oh it's going to be disneyfied and it's going to be like tame and everything and it won't it won't feel as brutal as it should be in the daredevil universe the trailer is put to rest any concerns on that it looks really well done it looks dramatic kingpin looks as fierce and menacing as he's, as he's ever been i can't wait for this echo is a lesser known character from the comics and she's only had a brief appearance uh, in the hawkeye series to give people a tease and everyone just wrote her off without actually thinking maybe sometimes we don't want characters that we know we want something that we can latch onto and grow with the whole phrase of nobody asked for this. Nobody asked for Iron Man back in 2008, True. but we got it. Nobody asked for the Thor, but we got it. Nobody yep. asked for Captain America, especially knowing how the 90s and 80s Captain America films were. Nobody hey, Andy, asked for them. No one asked for Indiana Jones. No one asked for Raise the Lost Ark. Nobody asked for Jaws. Nobody asked for Star Wars. Nobody asks for films. Creators create them. And TV shows is exactly the same. Um, Echo is going to launch under the new Marvel Spotlight banner. It's going to have a new opening logo and a new theme. And the Marvel Spotlight banner is going to apparently be stuff that you can watch without watching any of the other things. They're going to be side stories within the Marvel Universe that aren't feeding into the overall story. And this is a step in the right direction for Marvel with its TV shows. As we've discussed many times, they've overcomplicated things by making people feel that they need to watch Loki before they can watch Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, before they can watch etc, etc. Yeah. We've not got long to wait. It's It launches early next year, and all the episodes will drop at the same time. The trailer is great. If you've still not checked out the trailer for this, get on YouTube, get it watched. Hey, Andy, I think that's the news. <laughs> Uh, you're listening to The Film File. Yeah, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. Brought to you this week by Harvey Morton's Succeeding as a Young Entrepreneur. And you can purchase that by using the promo code FILMFILE25. And if you want to know more about The Film File and you've not subscribed, please do so by heading over to your favorite podcast platform and hitting the subscription and leave a like. And, you know, we are aiming by the end of the year to keep building up our audience and it's up to you guys as well if you want to have more film file uh, enable us to do even more then please get on board tell all your fellow geek pals to become part of the film file family and you can drop us a line you can indeed you can catch us on social media search for film file uk follow us on whatever social media you find us on and uh, speak to us about films you can email us podcast at filmfile.uk or you can 
I don't know, you can tie a note to a brick and throw it through my window. I'll probably still pay attention. Um, <laughs> just get in touch with us. Talk to us about films. Tell us what you love about films. Tell us, tell us your earliest memories of films. Anything. We're just big film geeks and we love, love to share our love of films with you. And now it's time for this week's Deep Dive. Dive, dive, dive. This week, as part of our deep dives, we are going back to 2016 to look at the very dark, very personal fantasy drama film directed by J.A. Bayona from a screenplay by Patrick Ness based on Ness's 2011 novel of the same name. We're going to be looking at A Monster Calls. For anyone who has ever felt invisible, for anyone. That tree's amazing. That's our friend. Whoever needed to find hope. I can help you. Comes a visually spectacular emotional journey. Critics rave. It's an unforgettable masterpiece. You will like a thrill. That will make your spirit soar. For this is why you called me. Come on. A monster cause. The film starred in voice Liam Neeson, Sigourney Weaver, Felicity Jones, Toby Kebbell, and Lewis MacDougall. The story features Connor, who grapples with his mother's terminal illness, and he's visited by the monster, a giant anthropomorphic yew tree who quite simply tells him stories. This film is an emotional gut punch, beautifully directed, beautifully told, full of meaning, full of ideas of loss. And Andy, when you watch this again, it kind of hit you hard. It really did. Now, this was a recommendation for a deep dive by Stephen Young out there, who you remember the last time we tackled one of his films, it took us like 18 months to get yeah. down to it. So I worked out it's been about 18 months since he first mentioned this one. So uh, in another 18 months, Stephen, we'll get around to doing another one of your suggestions. Um, but this was such a good suggestion. I'd not seen this film since it got released. I remember seeing it on release and being in tears in the darkened screen of the cinema watching it. But it's one of them that's kind of, I've kind of not gone back to, and there was no reason I've not gone back to. It just didn't feel like a film that I needed to rewatch. Yeah. But I am so glad that I popped it on again this week because it reminded me of how powerfully, movingly emotional it is, how layered the film is about humanity and, you know, the dual nature of mankind and how beautiful everything looks. I, I agree everything that you're saying. I, I couldn't come back to this film this week for uh, various things that have happened over the last year that I just couldn't put myself in that place. And, and not because it's it's a bad film, far, far from it. It was just, it, it is very raw. It is a, a very emotive, emotive movie that, that is beautifully, beautifully done. The whole approach of the story, yeah, it's a coming-of-age story. You've got the young Connor who is dealing with his mother's illness, but also dealing with bullying and pressure at schools. And it's as he's trying to cope with all his own burdening emotions that the monster comes to visit him. Yeah, he does, he does lots of drawings, doesn't he? Yeah, he's very artistic. He takes after his mother in that, that he, like she was always artistic and he's inherited that kind of trait. And then when the monster comes to him and says, I will tell you three stories and then you will tell me your story. The monster's stories are each like fantasy tales, like a, a prince and a princess or a king and a queen. And like they sound like typical fantasy tales until you get to the end of it when it suddenly flips it to point out that 
sometimes a good character can do bad things. Sometimes a bad person can do good things. And the, it, it teaches the young boy that what you see on the surface is not always what is within. And that leads to, after the three stories and like him confronting the bullies at school, it leads to him telling his story and his truth. And at that moment, at that moment, my eyes erupted because his story about dual nature back to the monster, the thing that he's been fighting inside him that the monster has obviously sensed the presence of and come to him to help guide him on this. It is devastating. And it's really beautifully done. It's beautifully done because all the cast involved in this give it their all. We've said multiple times young actors can be very hit or miss. But Lewis McDougal, who plays Connor, you'll have previously seen him in Pan. I believe it was in the Peter Pan. With Pan wasn't a great film, but he wasn't bad in it. But in this, he sells every moment of it. And... When you've got a child actor who is outshining names like Sigourney Weaver, Felicity Jones and Toby Kebble, you know you're in you're in good hands. And it's the capable hands of J.A. Bayona, who has really worked with the writer of the book in adapting this in such a perfect manner that I can't think of any moment in the film that feels like it doesn't really boost the film's profile. No, it resonates with it resonates with love. It's one of those films that that feels very, very, very personal to um, to the director and close to to the writer. And there is that rare thing. There's not there's not a misstep throughout yeah. the film. There are elements of treading very fine lines between fairy tale and the imagination and the horrors of, of the real world. Those elements of dark fantasy uh, and dark themes, um, and it's always always touching it's moving without being sentimental mm. and it balances very very easily all those different components and, and makes it work which is a hard thing to do and, and one of the hard things to do about emotive films because let's be honest you kind of know where it's going right at right at the, the get-go from from the opening scene yeah. you know what more or less the, some elements of the resolution is going to be but it, it doesn't lightly play with your emotions. It takes you on this this journey, which which surprises you on, on many many uh, many occasions. But it's not over sentimentalized. There's a, a an honesty to it and and somewhat of a brutality to it as well. You remember last week when I reviewed the latest Liam Neeson offer? Yes, and I was very very snipey about how Liam Neeson is in films. This film is one to remind you that even when he's not physically present on screen what Liam Neeson is actually capable of, because as the voice of the monster itself, his voice has a, a warmth, a depth, but a commanding presence all at the same time. And he is the perfect voice actor for this walking yew tree yeah. um, who tells stories. He tells his stories in such a way to draw you in. that I, Liam Neeson is now on my list of people who could read a shopping list to me and I would be enthralled. He's got a fantastic voice. He's got a fantastic presence. That has always been Liam Neeson. He has a, a strong, very unique uh, screen presence. Um, what's very sad about his career, and I'm sure Liam Neeson will, will disagree, doing very well and still working, is that he's not taking those chances anymore. Um, he's not making those movies where he could, at one point, he, he could do anything. He's done comedy. He's done romance, he's done action, he's done science fiction. 
but he's now fallen into this this uh, it's Don the Nicholas Cage route. He's he's doing movies which don't push him as an actor. They're very 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 similar. I'd like to see Liam Neeson go back and do something like a monster cause, something that has gravitas, something that is fit for his his talents of, of being a really good actor and uh, a move out of the comfort zone. There's an interesting bit of trivia for people who spot attention to detail. And I'd spotted this attention to detail. And the more I've thought about it, I think it's got relevance to the backstory of the monster. Is it the photograph? The photograph of Connor's grandfather is Liam Neeson. And so this yew tree monster is kind of a representation of the grandfather. And it's, it's particularly significant once you get to that closing moment when you realize that the monster's been around previously. That's why the monster is key to this family. That's why the monster is there for this family. It's because it's the spirit of Connor's grandfather guiding them. It might just be that they just wanted someone to put in a photo, and so they threw Liam Neeson in there. But it really lends well to the actual themes of the film and the journey of the film. The animation for the monster is fantastic. I love the design of it. I love how it breaks up from the tree. I love how it slowly stomps through like the the town, smashes walls through so it can talk. It's beautiful looking, but it's not the only beautiful looking thing. The location is picturesque. Yeah, shot around around Yorkshire. Some of it just up the road from here. The school scenes were in um, Colne Valley High School in Huddersfield. It's a great looking film. The storybook fairy tale stories that the monster reads, you get storybook kind of artwork presented on screen to depict it. Everything about this film looks and plays beautifully to draw you in and just really hit you with that emotional. The last 10 minutes, it's hard to watch the last 10 minutes, not because it's hard to watch emotionally, but because it's hard to watch because your eyes are just covered with water. You're just blubbing tears for 10 minutes at the end of this film. But it's a beautiful, it's one of those films that after you think, after the tears have all been wiped away at the end, you feel a sense of relief. You feel that like you've just managed to just get rid of some of your own demons at the same time as Connor's got rid of some of his own, his demons. That's the kind of film that works on such an emotional level. One that makes you recognize elements in your life that you've got a dual nature for and come to accept them and come to bear with them and work out how to go forward with them. I just want to mention uh, J.A. Bayona's career because he directed The Orphanage back in 2007 with Guillermo del Toro. And then he did the, again, gut-wrenching drama, The Impossible, which has got my favorite Ewan McGregor performance in. Uh, he brought us mm. Tom Holland. In fact, Tom Holland is uncredited at playing the monster at one point for a couple of days shooting where Neeson couldn't be on set. And, and then he, he gave us Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, which for we've said before, for half of the film is quite a great movie. And then it just goes off in a direction absolutely unnecessary. I'd like to see more of J.A. Bayona, I think he's a, a fantastic filmmaker. Looking at, at The Orphanage and Impossible and, and Monster Calls and putting aside Fallen Kingdom because he showed so much promise. Yes, he did a couple of episodes of the Rings of Power, the Lord of Rings series, and he did, I think he did a couple of episodes of Penny Dreadful. Uh, fantastic style. I'd just like to see more of him and see him back on the big screen doing quality work like this because I think he's... he's uh, He's got a very, very interesting visual style and and great voice. 
The film wasn't a success at the box office. It had a budget of 43 million and only scraped 47.3 million. So it didn't go into profit. It was nominated for a wide array of awards. It won significantly at the Spanish Awards, the Gaudi Awards and the Goya Awards. It pretty much swept the board at both of them. Elsewhere, it just got nominations and the odd one or two awards picked up. But this is a film that I, I suggest that everyone should watch. It's ideal for all ages. It's a beautiful story with fantasy elements that tells a very complex personal journey of a young boy coming to terms with potential loss. Get it checked out, guys. If you've never seen this film, Stephen Young is right in recommending this one for a deep dive because I am so glad I revisited it. Uh, Andy, where can we find it if we want to see A Monster Cause? Uh, it's available on Disney Plus in the UK. Just hop onto the Lookford Monster Calls and just spend an hour and a half, just over an hour and a half in wonderfully emotive arms. We'll be back next week with another deep dive. And now it's time for this week's reviews. Andy, you've been doing the Lord's work. What reviews have you got for us this week? I've got a load of films that I've watched. So I've narrowed down three out of my list because one of the films that I've watched this week doesn't come out until next week. So I'll hold that one over to next week. But I'm going to be targeting, first of all, I was quite excited when the trailer landed for this. It looked right up my alley. And I have said in recent years how much I'm quite enjoying Aquafina. And that's Quiz Lady that landed on Disney+. Plus. How long are you planning on staying? I'm focusing on manifesting the life I want. I hate all the words you just used. Yeah. I can't play on live TV. It's going to be fun. Am I sweating? Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know what? Put your arms down. My sister floats through life without ever thinking about how her actions affect other people. Best Picture Oscar winner. Birdman, Spotlight, Moonlight, Shape of Water, Green Book, Parasite, Nobody Land, Coda. Quiz Lady. Two sisters, Anna and Jenny, played by Aquafina and Sandra Oh, have a dysfunctional relationship, having been raised by a neglectful mother, resulting in Jenny becoming a brash, wild child who never grew up, whilst Anne turned to the comfort of TV, and in particular, a popular long-running game show, which served as her safe zone growing up. As adults, Anne is slouching, quiet and reserved, whilst Jenny is still a crazy party animal. However, when the pair receive news about their mother going missing, leaving a huge debt behind her which falls upon the sisters to pay, Jenny convinces the timid Anne to try for the game show that she loves so much to see if she can win big, having seen her answering along to the show with 100% accuracy. Thus begins a road trip which takes them to potential fame and fortune. The trailer for Quiz Show focused on the crazy comical aspects and the pairing of Aquafina and Sandra Oh promised a rather different dynamic from what you'd normally expect from the duo. Aquafina would typically be the brash and somewhat obnoxious one, whilst O would usually be cast in the more sensible and mature role. This flipping dynamic certainly works, and it's clear that the pair enjoyed playing against type within the film. Throw in Will Ferrell as the game show host Terry McTeer and Jason Schwartzman as the far too nice to be real long-standing champion of the show. The mix is about right for a fun-packed comedy film. But the end result, however, isn't as funny as the trailer suggested. With pretty much the most amusing moments already showcased in the marketing on the run-up to the release. However, this isn't actually a bad thing. Because what fills out the runtime from that point is a sometimes sweet and charming tale of two estranged sisters who have to come together and find common ground to rebuild their fractured relationship after a childhood of neglect. By the final act of the film, 
I'd kind of forgotten that I was supposed to be watching a comedy. And I was drawn so much into the heartfelt nature of the tale. This is a sweet and sporadically funny film that won't necessarily be one that I'll watch again. But it was diverting enough to entertain me for the runtime. I somehow don't think it's for me, but what else? What else have you got which may be for me? It landed on Apple TV Plus this week and it's also on a limited cinema release. And that's Jesse Buckley and Riz Ahmed in Fingernails. Have you guys taken the test? Yeah, three years ago. We were positive. Felt like a weight had been lifted. I founded this institute to take the risk out of love. No more uncertainty, no more wondering if you've chosen the right partner, no more divorce. We were the first to build the machines to conduct the test, to make the bond of love stronger. I really want to work here. A lot of famous people study there. Really? Like who? Ginger Spice. She's my favorite. I know. So you'll be shadowing Amir. He's already one of our most successful instructors. What's the one thing you love most about Maria? Take your time. I love her hair. It's soft. It's a nice answer. It's nice. Jesse Buckley, Riz Ahmed and Jeremy Allen White are in a film that explores love and whether there can be a scientific method to establish what it is. And if everyone believed that there was, what would happen if you begin to fall out of love or find attraction to somebody else? In the near future, a scientific method to determine whether a relationship would work is introduced. By removing a fingernail from each of the couple for testing, a system gives results of either 100%, which means both partners love each other equally and are perfectly matched, 50%, one has true love, the other doesn't, so the relationship will likely fail, or 0%, neither are truly in love, resulting mostly with these couples splitting up. The test has become so established that many couples accept the results as fact, even when in their hearts, they don't actually believe it. Anne and Ryan, played by Buckley and White, are a 100% match. But when Anne starts to question her feelings, and after taking a role at the Institute that conducts the test, becomes close to co-worker Amir, played by Riz Ahmed, it sends her down a spiral of confused emotions and obsession with the test. Feeling very much like an extended episode of Black Mirror, this explores similar themes of technology coming into conflict with human nature, as episodes of that show tend to do. Can science explain human behaviour and emotion? And what if we believe it to such a degree that we ignore our own desires? It's an interesting concept, but whether it warrants the almost two hours runtime here is debatable. However, with such a strong cast involved, including support from Luke Wilson and Annie Murphy, any failings that the film has are easily forgiven when the central players are so engrossing and enticing. Buckley is our main focus here, and it's impossible not to connect for her and care for her. As Anna's doubts start to set in, Buckley plays all the fine nuances of the struggles effortlessly. Jeremy Allen White, whose rise in recent history is finally establishing it as a name to watch out for, delivers in a role that could have easily been overplayed, but instead seems somewhat pitiful at times. His reliance on the results of the test, possibly meaning that he's missed out on love and life elsewhere, and whilst in lesser hands he would be the wrong partner for us to dislike, instead, we kind of care for what this all means for him as Anna starts to drift away from him. Rounding off the trio, Riz Ahmed excels as he's dealing with his own personal loss of love and reluctantly connects with Anna. There's layers within this tale that could have been explored in greater depth, and the ending leaves a fair bit of ambiguity as to the future of the characters, never seeming to settle on a decisive answer as to what is love. And maybe that's the point. You can't divine what true love is. 
and what relationships will stand the test of time. With no manner of science ever being able to make sense of human behaviours and emotions, and especially not lumping them down into a yes, no, and possibly result. Solid performances lift up this otherwise occasionally underdeveloped film. And lastly... And finally, The Royal Hotel, which you can find on limited cinema release across the UK at the moment. Gold is for Carl Gold. Red is Redland. And he's in his hand. You get him a beer. Why do you want to come all the way out here? It was the furthest away. Playing in a little when you serve him down, eh? <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Dickens? Dickens Cider? <laughs> They're disgusting. It's a tip. That's enough. Come in, go. Hi. We're leaving. We're out. Where are you gonna go, eh? Bus is not for two days. I'm scared of everyone and everything in this place. Make what you can, get on the bus and go. Hannah and Liv, played by Julia Garner and Jessica Henwick, are two Canadians backpacking through Australia, who, when they run out of money, take up agency work for a couple of weeks. They are sent out to help run a bar named the Royal Hotel, out in a remote mining community in the outback. Meeting the bar owner, Billy, played by Hugo Weaving, and his wife, Carol, played by Ursula Jovic, the pair are confronted by the gruff and somewhat offensive nature of the isolated town through Billy's expletive-filled introduction. Liv shrugs it off as just how folk are in this isolated community, whilst Hannah becomes concerned that maybe they should leave. The first busy night that follows sees the pair continue in this manner, Liv shrugging off any comments and male gaze attentions with jest, while Hannah grows more and more cautious and concerned. The next day, one bar patron, Matty, played by Toby Wallace, befriends the pair, making up for his lewd behaviour the previous night, which seems to calm Hannah's concerns somewhat. However, as the days progress, more and more things come to light that build the tension of isolation in a potentially hostile and toxic environment. The Royal Hotel plays out pretty much as you would expect from the premise. Two young females in an isolated community of predominantly males find themselves the focus of unwanted attention, yet doesn't go as far as many other films which share that premise. This is a good thing, as the concept is one that could have quite easily turned into a tropish generic horror in the final act, but here the focus is instead on the constant and escalating tensions and potential danger, with a variety of male characters who can seem both good-natured and menacing at the same time. The uncertainty of this community and who can be trusted is what helps make watching this film a nervy, heart-racing 91 minutes. The final act doesn't actually deliver what you overall expect, but it feels it's what the situation deserves and what the message that the film is trying to convey necessitates. The performances of the whole cast, it must be said, are what makes this all come together and work in what is essentially a bottled representation of coping with unwanted male gaze and demeaning misogyny that is, sadly, all around us in the world today, condensed into a short runtime. If you fancy 91 minutes of uncomfortable dread where you're constantly on edge, this is definitely the film for you. So that's this week's reviews. I finally caught up with the creator. Andy and I talked about it. I liked it a lot. I didn't love it. I thought the visual style was fantastic. I love his style. I think he's, mm. he, he knows how to shoot sci-fi in a very, very unique, unique way that makes it feel real. 
that's the best way yeah. to describe it. Uh, the one thing that I, I will think that he's a great Bond director to be, anyone could shoot a Bond film. I think Gareth Edwards would make a good Bond director. Just leaving it out there. Anyway, Andy, what's out this week? We know the Marvels lands this week and we'll have a review for it in next week's show. Yeah, uh, so cinemas, the Marvels. There's also Thomas and Friends Tale of the Brave, which uh, funnily enough isn't on my radar. What is on my radar, though, is Dream Scenario, the new Nick Cage film that lands at cinemas this week. And Anatomy of a Fall also lands at cinemas this week, which we will be mentioning next week because I've already seen it. On Now TV and Sky, Big George Foreman and She Came to Me both land this week. On Netflix, it's been at cinemas for the past two weeks. I've not had a chance to catch it at the cinemas, so I should be able to settle down and watch on my TV. David Fincher's The Killer. Yep, up for Studio that 666, which was one of our treats of recent years, lands on Netflix this week. The 355, which was okay, lands on Netflix. Yeah, we didn't hate it. It just wasn't great. But like a TV pilot. Yeah. And get ready for Christmas because the Claws Family 3 lands on Netflix. Yes, we're at that time of year when every week there's going to be more Christmas drops. Over on Amazon, Nandor Fogor and the Talking Mongoose. Okay. Which needs to be seen just for that title. And on Disney Plus, the Santa Clauses Season 2 lands and a Murder at the End of the World Season 1. I've got my eye on a Murder at the End of the World. Looks quite good. And that, folks, that brings us up to the end of the show. But before we go, and of course, you know, if you're a regular listener, we do this every week. It's our neat things. Hey, if you've got suggestions for our neat things, things that you think we should uh, take a look at, please let us know. Uh, My neat thing is different, but Andy, as ever, goes first. So my neat thing this week, and I'm heading over to the world of comic books, and in particular DC. Now, I've read some of the titles that this is part of but this week i read through the collected volume of cal l returns which has been the recent reintroduction of the cal l superman into the dc comic book universe superman's been off doing other things he's been missing from earth and he's left his son in charge for the past few years worth of comic book run finalized in the epic war world revolution well Now the Man of Steel is back on Earth and he's stronger than he's ever been. Two of Superman's classic villains take notice of his return and they have plans of their own. This is the setup for this whole new era that DC are doing, um, the new DC. And this volume, Kal-El Returns, is a great jump on point to be reintroduced to the character and what his presence means on an Earth that also has other super people. The whole reset of DC at the moment has introduced quite a few variations in the same way that over in marvel um spider-man is now working closely with norman osborne because norman osborne is no longer a bad guy dc has taken the approach that lex has uh, has made an offer to superman that they will work together to better humanity while lex is behind bars obviously superman's skeptical about this and this is the start of all this this is why does superman now want to work with lex what is he doing and what's going on it's a great collected volume. It collects stuff from like the various super titles that were out there at the run-up to the new launch of DC. And I've enjoyed reminding myself of what it is that I love about the Superman character and why what I saw on the big screen in recent years did not reflect the Superman character that I know from the comics. Kal-El returns, collects those volumes, and then from that point onwards, if you're not on board then there's something wrong with you. But I suspect that once you've read this, you'll be looking forward to continuing the super journey going forwards. Okay, so mine is this week, it's an album. 
it has been an incredibly nostalgic few weeks as far as music goes. We had the brand new Beatles record uh, that blew everybody away this week. But a couple of weeks ago, there was the release of the Rolling Stones album, Hackney Diamonds. And I've always been a big fan of the Stones. They're kind of my um, they're my go-to band, uh, the band that I, I wish I could have been in, Move Over Mick Jagger. The thing that's great about this is it's the first proper Stones album for many years, but even more importantly, it's the first great Stones album since I think way back in the 80s with Tattoo You. The Stones are very good at writing singles. Their albums are usually a little bit hit and miss. The singles always stand out and are the ones that you go to every single time. So even though they've made some pretty good records, Voodoo Lounge was a was a good one. It's never consistent. This feels like a consistent album. Never say never, but I've got a feeling this will be the last Rolling Stones album. And, you know, the guys deserve it. They've been going now for 60 odd years and still do sell out concerts. If they are going to leave it be, what a way to go out. It's a classic Stones album. They don't reinvent the wheel. Why should they? They're the Rolling Stones. There's some great singles and there's some great songs. And and the album doesn't feel as though it's filled with filler. Every track so far for me matters. I'm playing it to death. Absolutely love it. This is what rock and roll is all about. So my neat thing is the Rolling Stones, Hackney Diamonds album. Buy it at a convenient record store near you. And that's us done for this week. Uh, We'll be back again in some kind of form next week, uh, (laughs) depending on hangovers, (laughs) late nights, uh, all will be revealed. I'll be all chipper and full of life and you will be... uh... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you will be added in later with an audio dub, I think. Yeah, I'm going to be an AI version of me uh, this week. Uh, all will be revealed next week. But as ever, thank you for spending your precious time with us. Uh, we really do appreciate it. Andy, anything planned for this week other than the big day? Not a great deal. Um, obviously, it's it's trying to find space to watch the films that I intend to watch this coming week because uh, lots of work going on at the moment. But nothing major going on except for the big day next next Saturday. All right. Well, we'll uh, we'll see you after the big day, and we'll let you know. Uh, so, thanks for listening. We'll be back again next week. And stories are wild animals. If you let them loose, who knows what havoc they may wreak. Demanding that I hand over Smarties and Revels, uh, or they'll set fire to my bush. I don't know. What what did they do for the tricks these days? Who knows? <laughs> I knew that set you off. <laughs> yes, well. <laughs> we had Sis Astro Aqua Girl Star Wars Lover who said, not really answering your question. Uh, and this was great because like this wasn't really related like the question, but it's kind of related. She wanted to know who put out all the Western Saturday serials that kids you'd watch as kids in the 60s. Not sure if it before the main film, but it just seems like it curious. And Republic Pictures and Universal yeah. predominantly did uh, things right. like Zorro, Low Ranger, Dick Tracy, Red Rider, loads of them between the 30s and 50s that got regurgitated through the decades. 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T. He's popular with the ladies. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I've, I've got lots of Not memories of those. With the Five Fingers of Mr. T. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I've, I've been a fool. Oh. <laughs> <laughs>
Uh, always buying gloves for Christmas. Um, five finger, uh, five fingered at Freddy's. Five fingered Freddy's. <laughs> We're not doing that again. <laughs> As Taylor Swift got fingered. <laughs> it's my favourite outtake in recent months. <laughs> Daddy, would you like some sausages? <laughs> I'm going to talk about a film that we have been looking forward to for an awful long time, and we even talked about this a few weeks ago. Freddy Got Fingered 2. <laughs> I don't think that will happen now for some reason. Stick it out. Except on the sample. You can just hit the round button. Stick it out. <laughs> If we do a whole episode where we just be toxic and anti-female, we will suddenly be the most popular podcast on the planet. Because that's how you get clicks, just by going, well, I don't think that women should be in charge of making films because they always make bad films. Yeah, they could. I could even do it in a, I could even do it in a Danny voice from um, With Nell and I. <laughs> I don't think that women should make films. I think that men or the only people who can make them. Oh, it, drives, it drives me nuts. That I see, see uh, stuff out there and it's like, you know, some dumbass sat in his room and uh, without any any personality or charisma. It, it drives me nuts. Just turn out. Okay, I, I only put those videos up last week. <laughs> but... <laughs> Fine, I'll Just... take them down again. <laughs> <laughs> Just because you, you, you're a character doesn't mean you've got character. <laughs> right. On, on, on to, to, to deep dive. <laughs>